Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 Kings, chapter 3, verses 1 to 28, and then we're going to flip a page to chapter 4, verses 29 to 34. So please follow along. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places, because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Then king went, sorry, the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God asked, ask for what you want me to say, want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings." And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead, while that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two 
and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. We're now going to move over a page to chapter 4, verses 29 to uh, 34. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wisder than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Haman, Kalkol, and Dada, the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Thank you, Corin, and good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Jamie. If we haven't met yet, let me add my welcome to Matt's. A quote to begin with. Um, I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world, exactly. Uh, So that's Louis Armstrong singing or growling back in 1967. He kind of captures the dream, doesn't he? Nature doing its thing, people enjoying it, friends shaking hands in perfect harmony, uh, complete with dreamy 60s production. Louis' growling voice takes us there for a moment. It brings us the memories or maybe just the fantasies of when we've tasted that wonderful world. On another level, though, the sheer simplicity of the song might strike you as a tad unkind because our world is not like that, not often anyway. My strongest memory of what a wonderful world is, is sitting in a church hearing it played at a funeral. A bittersweet soundtrack, to say the least. The first readers of 1 Kings, chapters 3 and 4, would have heard those words. A bit like that. They were the remnant of the once great Jewish nation, now living as exiles in a strange land because of their collective rejection of the God who loved them. Now listen to these words, thinking, how did we end up here? And is there any hope for us? As they heard our chapters that Corin just read, it would have been very bittersweet because their forefathers had tasted the wonderful, wonderful world, a world of peace under their greatest king. Have a listen to uh, chapter 4, verse 25. It's up on the screen. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, everyone under their own vine, 
and under their own fig tree. Trees of green, red roses, and juicy figs for everyone in the kingdom. Now, sitting in their cold homes in pagan Babylonian empire, the exiles would have read this and hungered for another taste of that world. Of the Jewish nation that was still alive and still believed in God, there would have just been a few, really. And some knew what it was like to be marginalized. Many knew the pressure to compromise and be like the pagan religions of the day and forget the Lord. They would have read this and asked, could we ever taste peace like that again? And I hope, as we read these chapters we'll hunger for peace too. I hope that we're not too jaded by our long history of dissatisfying political leaders, of conflict, of loss, to hope for rest and satisfaction. Because whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, the God of all creation is holding out the promise of peace to you today. So the reasonable question to ask is, how on earth would he bring that about? Let's dive back into the start of chapter 3 in your Bibles, uh, where the first part of the answer to that question is, it's complicated. Uh, That's point one in your outlines. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'd be suspicious of any claim to finding peace that was a quick DIY trick. God knows better than any of us just how complicated the world is. And so the solution needs to address that. We get a window into just how complicated Solomon's world is in verse 1. Have a look with me. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. These opening verses are full of shades of grey. Like, is it a good thing that Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter? On the one hand, it raises alarm bells. Uh, Israel have been warned about going the way of the nations. A marriage alliance with a superpower like Egypt could well be a ticket to turning away from God and, in a sense, returning to the nation that had once enslaved them. On the other hand, an alliance with Egypt might be a sign that God has made Israel such a great nation that even their former captor is now benefiting from their greatness, depending on which way the influence flows. Throw into the mix the fact that Solomon's love of marrying women from various nations proves to be his demise in the end. It could be a good thing, but it depends. The world is complicated. The idea of world peace, uh, it's not just a little tweak away. It's complicated because the human heart is complicated. Let's read on from verse 2. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. 
Did you hear the two big exception clauses? Uh, Solomon is building the temple in Jerusalem, just like God promised he would. However, in the meantime, the people are worshipping God in a way that he specifically asked them not to. On the one hand, they rightly wanted to show their humble dependence on God, the God who loved them. On the other, they were doing that on the high places, which is just what the people who worshipped other gods did. They were honouring God, but on their own terms. And no one embodies the complexity of the human heart better than the king himself. We're told that he loved the Lord and he followed him faithfully and even lavishly. But, exception clause number two, he too did it on his own terms. I think it's all meant to puzzle us a bit because the heart is complicated. We're not meant to write King Solomon off at this point. Now, we're about to see a massive high point in his life and arguably the high point of Israel's history before Christ. But spoiler alert, there is a low point coming too. At this point in the story, I think we're meant to wonder, hmm, he married Pharaoh's daughter. That could be a great thing for God's people. He loves the Lord. This is a king worth watching. Maybe he'll learn to worship God on his own terms after the temple is built. Our world and our hearts are still complicated, aren't they? It'd be fair enough if we found ourselves wondering, well, how will God bring peace to all this? Even if you're convinced that there are satisfying answers to be found in Jesus, following him in this world can be complicated. Australian churches are grappling with the latest census data, shows that fewer and fewer Aussies want to label themselves as Christian. How should we respond? Looking to others who have done great things for the kingdom can help, but sadly, it's not simple. I don't know if anyone else has listened to that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Uh, It tells the story of a church that did some incredible things in a very secular city and yet caused some terrible damage uh, through some unhealthy leadership dynamics. To make it even trickier, uh, those who tell the story on the podcast seem to offer a mix of really helpful insights and some quite unhelpful stuff as well. That's life in this world, isn't it? We are a mess of motives. Sometimes we're faced with obvious right and wrong choices, but often it depends. Like it could be a great thing to go for that job if it's not going to lead your heart towards workaholism. So as we're faced with Solomon's complex world and heart in these opening verses, I think we're being called towards honest self-examination as we think about our lives and decisions to be brave and ask, what's going on in my heart? It's easy to justify things by saying, God must want me to do this. But let's be reminded by the high places in this chapter that sometimes it's more complex than that. 
Am I really listening to what God has to say about this decision? Or am I looking for a spiritual-looking way to do things on my own terms? Now, thank God, we don't need to get paralyzed by all this. Our motives will never be perfect, and God works in and through us in that mess. But there is value in pausing to examine our complex hearts. And and something that Solomon talks about a lot in his Proverbs is the value of having sisters and brothers, true friends, who you can talk about those complicated things with. The messiness we see in 1 Kings begs for a solution. How will God bring peace? Is there a way for human beings to enjoy living for him on his terms? We'll point to how God brings order to the chaos. Verse 5 gives us a stunning insight into God's character. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. God breaks into the chaos and meets Solomon, even in that somewhat dubious spot, the most important high place. Because if there's going to be a solution to the problem of the human heart, it's going to come by God's initiative. So the generous father stoops down and starts the conversation with Solomon. What do you want me to give you? One of the things that makes reading Kings really hard, and lots of the Old Testament narratives, is they describe things that people said and did, sometimes really troubling things, and we're not always told straight up how we're supposed to respond. We need to read sensitively, listening for how the God-inspired author tells us what those events mean. And we have a great example of that in verse 10. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Okay, so that's a somewhat rare but very clear comment on what Solomon did. Let's take it. Okay, so what was it about Solomon that pleased God? That's a key question in Kings. Because imagine those exiled Israelites who first read it, sitting in a Babylonian pub, shaking their heads at the latest headlines talking about the good old days. Ah, there was peace in the world, at least for a moment under Solomon. Those first readers of Kings have got to understand exactly what it was about Solomon that made those good old days so good. Otherwise, they'll just repeat the mistakes of the past. So God points first to what Solomon didn't ask for. Have a look at verse 11. Since you have not asked for this, since you have asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering, in, in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. So the king of peace is not just looking out for number one. And doesn't our world need a leader like that? He's not in it for himself because Solomon understands his place within reality. He knows that he's part of a much bigger story. Have a look at verse 6 as Solomon begins his prayer. You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. 
You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Solomon really echoes the language of 2 Samuel chapter 7 here. Uh, I've got a bit up on the screen. Uh, God said to David then, When your days are over and, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one to build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. We can tell from Solomon's prayer that he knows that he's living in a story of God coming good on that promise. He is that promised son. But he also knows the saga of God's kindness goes back further. So let's hear the next bit of Solomon's prayer in verse 8. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. Now he's connecting his prayer to God's promise back in Genesis to a wanderer named Abraham who God chose. And he said to Abraham that a great nation would emerge from his offspring, a nation too vast to number that would bring God's blessing to all the world, which is what God created Adam and Eve for in the first place. So that's Solomon's brilliance. He understood that the hope of the world rests on God coming good on his word to David, Abraham, Adam, and Eve. He's a king who wants to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which makes sense of the one thing he does ask for in verse 9. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. He feels the weight of the task and he knows that peace will only come by the word of our kind creator. So he asks for a heart that listens. And the Lord was pleased. Solomon gets it. Stepping back for a minute, God has always been about bringing order to chaos through giving his word. When the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep, God spoke and there was light. When humanity was lost in its own selfishness and violence because we chose to cut God out of the picture, he spoke, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. In a turbulent world, God secures the future by promising David, from you will come the prince of peace. And when that kingdom hangs by a thread after David dies, God speaks to Solomon. When Solomon's greatest son, Jesus, enters the scene, he speaks, and even in the wind and the waves obey him. And even today, God is still speaking chaos into order through his word about the king. He's still securing the future, even for people like us. The high point of Solomon's reign stems from him realizing that he needs outside help from the God who speaks chaos into order. And God answered that prayer 
more than anything else, Solomon is remembered as a man of wisdom. And wisdom in the biblical sense is about listening to God, both in his promises to save a people for himself and in discerning the order that God has spoken into creation. Listen to your heart. Sounds nice. But we are a mess of motives and bitter experience tells us that we don't have it within ourselves to bring about peace and order. God offered outside help to Solomon and see how it changed his life. In verse 15, he moves from the great high place to Jerusalem. His first wise act is to start listening to God about where he wanted his people to worship him. And so he became, for a moment at least, the great worship leader of Israel. As we reflect on this high point in Solomon's life, the invitation for all of us is, ask for outside help. Are you tired of trying to get everything together for yourself? Have you tasted the emptiness of that Disney promise that all the answers lie within your heart? God offers outside help. And he doesn't wait till we have it all together. He reached out to Solomon at Gibeon and he's reached out to each and every one of us in person, in the person of Jesus, who said, come to me and I will give you rest. And the words of the God who spoke the universe into being make things happen. You might be here today wondering if you'd want to label yourself as a Christian. As you explore that question, why not try, it might be a risky move, but why not try today asking God, if you're there, please show me, please help me. For those already following Jesus, what would it look like to keep bringing every decision, every corner of our hearts before our Father and asking, please show me how to listen to you in this. But the challenge of asking for outside help is, it involves trust. And in our complex world, we've all felt the sting of broken trust. So the question is, can God be trusted to bring peace, not only to my life, but to the world? What would your honest answer to that question be at the moment? Let's take it with us into point three, where we see what it looks like when God rules the world through a wise king. Verse 16 takes us to a moment in Solomon's career that the author of Kings reckons captures it all perfectly. And I think we're meant to be surprised that this story makes the highlights real. I mean, first of all, how do two prostitutes get an official hearing from his royal highness? I mean, sure, it was the king's job to make sure there was justice for everyone in the kingdom, but what kind of king actually sets, a time, sets aside time in his diary to hear from those at the very bottom of the social and moral pecking order? Those of us who lead others in some way can take note of this. You can tell a lot about a leader's character by how they treat those who are beneath them. 
Of course you're going to be nice to the people you want to impress. What about the nobodies? Solomon even tolerates it when they move from kind of respectfully laying out the facts in verse 17 to just full-on arguing in his presence in verse 22. He listens to them fight, and he practices active listening. He reflects back what he's heard in verse 23. This one says, my son is alive and your son is dead, while that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. But when the sword comes out in verse 24, I imagine the squabbling would have kind of stopped quite quickly. Have they overstepped too far? Arguing in front of the king. Is he going to be just another tyrant who says, off with their heads? But then he uses it for something totally different as he executes justice for the poor with divine insight. Cut the living child in two and give one half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. And so the truth comes to light. That's the real mum. It's a case that's both genuinely puzzling and heartbreaking. A child has died, and it's one woman's word against the other. There were no witnesses. But God gave Solomon the wisdom to bring the truth to light. We can understand the other mum's harsh response, cut him in two, only when we stop and think about what she has just lost. She has been left bitter and vindictive in her grief. The king who will bring God's peace to the world needs to know how to put things right for those at the very bottom. He needs brilliant insight into the way God has made human beings, and he needs to know how to meet them in bitter grief. As we come to the end of chapter 3, I think we're meant to be feeling hungry, yearning for the king who is wise enough to rule the world. For one shining moment, Israel knew what it was like. Even the prostitutes got a fair hearing. And so my first of two takeaway encouragements from this passage is simply this, hunger for peace. When Jesus comes on the scene centuries later and says that the kingdom of God has come near, our hopes are meant to soar within us because we're picturing this kingdom. And then we watch Jesus bring peace to the bottom of the pecking order. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. They're the first to understand the forgiveness he came to bring. He stuns the masses with his wise words. He even shuts up the religious lawyers who try to trap him about whether they should pay taxes to Caesar. His response is that genius. And then he shows the height of his wisdom on the day he dies. He not only associates with the lowest of the low, but he takes their place and he hangs bleeding on a criminal's cross, which is the masterstroke. Because in that moment of apparent weakness, the strength of God is at work. 
winning real costly peace for human beings. The king lays down his life to save his rebellious citizens. Solomon was able to make sure the surviving baby went home with his mum, but he couldn't give the other mum her baby back. But Jesus can. He gave us a foretaste of that when he walked the earth. And he has promised that the day is coming when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. All his people will get perfect peace, worshipping God in the new Jerusalem. Do you hunger for that? God has promised a peace greater than Solomon's, and he's deadly serious about bringing it about. And as with Solomon, he will bring it his way. It won't be through the impressive might and conquest of his people, but by keeping his promises. He's only allowing this chaotic world to keep spinning so that more of us get the opportunity to bow the knee to the Prince of Peace in these days of his mercy. Second takeaway encouragement, fear the wise king. Hunger for peace? Fear the wise king. Have a look at how the kingdom reacts in verse 28. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Jesus' wisdom, which we see a glimpse of in Solomon's rule, shouldn't just impress us, it should scare us because it shows his claim to rule over our lives. Of course, it's a healthy kind of fear, because our lives are in good hands with Jesus. But here's the question. Do you believe that Jesus is wise enough to rule the world? When we say Jesus is king, it's tempting to kind of imagine that means He's a pretty important person in my life. But 1 Kings shows us the scope of his rule, international politics, peace to the poor, justice for all, grace to the humble. That's what Jesus promised when he said, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Do you believe that he is wise enough to rule the world, to rule your world? That the things that he has said about life and money and sex and priorities are awesomely wise. Here are three little snapshots of what I think this healthy fear can look like. Miriam comes from a very high achieving family. After lots of hard work, she finished year 12 strong. Everyone was expecting her to head into something high profile at uni. But Miriam knew that in her heart of hearts, as a high achiever, she wouldn't be able to go for that top job she'd been thinking of without becoming disengaged from other important things like her church. She ended up choosing a career path that was still challenging and rewarding, but less demanding because she wanted to have some flexibility to serve 
She was more worried about drifting from Jesus than losing the job of her dreams. Tom's friends are super important to him. So it was really hard for him when he noticed one of his Christian mates start dabbling in some behavior that was quite dishonoring to Jesus. Tom thought and prayed about it because he didn't want to offend his mate if he could help it. But in the end, he had to take Jesus at his word when he calls us to try and win back the straying brother. So he went and risked the friendship because he feared the king more than the difficult chat. Chapo was a well-known preacher, but this story comes from after he retired. He lived in a retirement village, and he dedicated the last season of his life to sharing the gospel with his neighbors. He made it a habit to deliver the newspaper to their doors and try and get invited in for a cuppa so that he could get to know them and talk about Jesus. He believed that was the best way to spend his retirement. Now, I'm not trying to be prescriptive here. I'm just trying to get your imaginations going. It wasn't wealth, power, and long life that drove those people in the stories. It was their desire to listen to the king. And of course, it was messier than my little snapshots make it sound like. But they sought Jesus' kingdom first and trusted him with the rest. Perhaps you can think of practical ways that your healthy fear of the king can and should play out in your life at the moment. But whatever the outworking, this is the conviction that I pray that God might give me and all of us. Jesus is so wise. He deserves my fear and my trust. This is the question I wrote for myself uh, in the corner of my little preaching prep doc this week. Do I really believe that Jesus is wise enough to rule my world? If so, would I be so consumed with worry about my life, my status, and my security? If you can relate to that at all, uh, come again and be struck by how deserving Jesus is of our trust. Be struck again by his genius wisdom his love for the lowly, his blood-earnest promise, peace will come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.